In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Did I do that okay? Did I miss a line? Clear mirror intellect. I always <laughs> miss that one too. <laughs> May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Majushri, please make this happen soon. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome. Nice to see you guys, all of you on uh, Losar, Losar Tashi Delic. Auspicious good wishes for the year of the watery rabbit. It's like a waterlogged rabbit. It'd be like all wet and damp and mushy. But. Uh, or it's like watership down and they're really crafty motherfuckers. Either or, right? They, they just shake it off like in a second, right? Or they build a raft. Oh, okay. Ooh. A rabbit raft. So today, tonight, we get to finally go through uh, what is more commonly known as the uh, classifications of mental factors in the tradition and what often is associated with this topic when people study it in certain circumstances is they go through the lists of mental factors and learn in particular what the virtuous and non-virtuous ones are from the point of view of learning why and how to avoid them. Uh, I guess mostly why to avoid, what, what, what to avoid and why and what to cultivate and why and uh, so that's what we have tonight, starting with, uh, I think we're starting with the mental factors with the determinate object, but I'm probably off. Where, where am I? Is that right? Good. I didn't make a clear indication last time, even though I got it right in the reading reminder. So uh, we're on page 111. Is that right? Great. Okay, thanks. So, and uh, this process of going through them uh, should be fairly quick because they're fairly straightforward. It's mostly a list of uh, qualities that we all know. And there's nuances about them that are extremely interesting and helpful that we'll dwell on a little. And the determinate object, the mental factors with the determinate object is different from the other ones, so we'll spend some time there. Second, the five mental factors with the determinate object are aspiration, resolution, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And as we'll see, these are like momentary mental, uh, these are mo momentary features of consciousness. Uh, and they're not always the same as what we think of as um, 
like aspiration practices in Buddhism are, are common, aspirational practices, aspiring to uh, bodhicitta, aspiring to rebirth in uh, Sukhavati, aspiring to become a Buddha, aspiring to become enlightened. That's like a, a much more a momentary quality of like um, interest or aspiring to connect to or understand or know an object. The Compendium of Ascertainments says, uh, do any that are not omnipresent arise? Any, um, referring to any mental, fa mental factors, there are many that are not omnipresent, but the main ones are the following five aspiration, resolution, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. They're said to have determinate objects because they ascertain only particular objects in this order. A desired object, a determined object, an object of acquaintance, analyzed object. The Compendium of Ascertainment says in relation to which determinate objects do any of the non-omnipresent mental factors arise. There are four types in this order, desire, determination, acquaintance, and analysis. The last of this set of four, so this is a, a set of four from a different text that is basically equivalent to the set of five that we were given initially. Some of them have slightly different uh, nuances, so they're, slight, so they're different words, and then one of them covers two of the original five. So they say the last meaning analysis refers to concentration and wisdom. So there's the mental factor or activity of analysis, which includes concentration and wisdom. Interestingly, we would not usually consider analysis to include concentration, but in this case, from their point of view, it does. Whereas the rest are for the first three in that order which is a very clunky way of saying that they're the, they're the same in both lists. <laughs> the verse summary reads, the five with a determinate object are thus aspiration, resolution, uh, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And as we'll see, resolution is not like making a New Year's resolution, uh, but it's more like uh, the resolution of uh, focusing on a, on a object with a camera. First to explain aspiration, the cause of aspiration is to see the qualities of the object. I don't know why they say and so on, but it's basically just that. The definition of aspiration is a mental factor that upon observing a desired thing, thing being a technical term, <laughs> seeks to attain the thing by its own power. An example is a mental factor that seeks to attain qualities that not have arisen in oneself in order to give rise to those qualities. That's more of the general meaning, aspiring for loving kindness or bodhicitta. As for the meaning of the term aspiration, it is so called because seeking the thing that is its object enables the mind and all the mental factors with which it is concomitant to aspire for its object. 
So it's like the mind, you know, if we, if we look back at the ones from the prior list, the last one was contact. So if you look at the, these factors as like, in, as sort of a sequential in some sense, or building upon each other, from the last list of omnipresent mental factors, which briefly were feeling, discernment, intention, attention, and contact, then after contact is made with an object, there's, if one, um, in some cases, one then has an interest or an aspiration to connect further with that object in order to know or experience that object. So it's from that point of view that we say it's um, seeking the thing that is its object. The Compendium of Knowledge says, what is aspiration? Is the very wish to be endowed with this or that attribute of a desired thing? Its function is to act as a basis for generating diligence. So this aspiration, Asper, this mental factor of aspiration functions to generate uh, diligence. It, it inspires us to be diligent in cultivating something or knowing something or connecting with it in some basic way. The function of aspiration is directly to produce diligence and indirectly to bring about an increase in all known good qualities. It's a sort of catch-all. The compendium ascertainment says what function does aspiration have? It has the function of giving rise to diligence. When categorized, there are three types of aspiration. Aspiration wanting to meet with the object, aspiration wanting not to be separated from the object, and aspiration seeking to obtain the object. Second, to explain resolution. So each, uh, most of these are given these different types, which are, are interesting. I've, I've not seen before this way of breaking down these mental factors with various types, which adds, in my opinion, a really nice layer of uh, uh, ability to understand them. So the second uh, mental factor with a determinate object, which in this category is usually called um, object-determining mental factors. So mental factors that assist in so-called determining an object or fully knowing or, or apprehending an object. The second one to explain resolution. The cause of resolution is to see, hear, or remember, and so on, the qualities of the object. The definition of resolution is a mental factor that by its own power, upon perceiving an object previously seen, heard, and so on, has the aspect of apprehending it to be just so. An example is an instance of a mental factor that in relation to an object ascertained through analysis thinks it is just so in accord with that ascertainment. So resolution, uh, uh, like uh, the resolution of a camera or a telescope or some sort of lens that allows one to experience and understand an object as it is clearly. 
An example is an instance of a mental factor. I read that, sorry. Likewise, the compendium of knowledge says, what is resolution? It apprehends the ascertained thing to be just as it is ascertained. So it functions to prevent diversion. So in contacting an object, we, we identify and are able to focus on that object and not be scattered in our attention to uh, objects that are either surrounding it uh, positionally or are um, similar to it and whatever qualities are relevant. According to the commentaries on the treasury of knowledge, <coughs> excuse me, resolution is not necessarily a mind that realizes its object because there are non-virtuous resolutions that apprehend their objects bless you in accord with false ascertainment of those objects to explain the etymology of the term the sanskrit word adimoksha which is the sanskrit word for this has the connotation of determining its object hence it is called resolution and uh in many texts, this term is translated as determination. There are the following difference between, differences between resolution and discernment. Uh, resolution by its own power prevents diversion of the mind from its object, whereas discernment by its own power applies a classificatory dis convention to the object. So discernment goes another step in... Uh, in sort of labeling and uh, categorizing the object. And uh, if we remember, discernment was the second of the omnipresent mental factors and is uh, the third of the five skandhas, is their translation, discernment. Also, resolution by its own power apprehends its object to be just so, whereas discernment merely distinguishes the object. So, sort of earlier in the cognitional process, discernment distinguishes an object. Um, and then resolution later on, having made contact and sort of turning toward the object through aspiration, uh, by resolution we apprehend the object as it uh, to be just so, or as it is. The function of resolution is such that in regard to an object's qualities or faults or neither, it resolves the object to be just so and prevents diversion to something else. This pretty much sums up what they've been saying for three paragraphs. The compendium says, what function does resolution have? It has the function of being resolved about good qualities, faults, or neither of those regarding the object. And <laughs> the part of neither of those feels like it could be uh, resolved about anything, but I think it's more like positive, negative, and neutral qualities. The compendium categorizes it into three divisions. Resolution perceiving good qualities in its object. Resolution perceiving faults. And resolution perceiving neither good qualities nor faults. Third, to explain mindfulness, the third of the object determining mental factors. The cause of mindfulness is great appreciation. That's an interesting thing to note 
is that mindfulness comes about through appreciation. We often hear the term familiarity instead of appreciation. That we are able to maintain mindfulness with the breath by becoming familiar with the breath, the different qualities of the breath. And so in meditation, we're encouraged to really connect with and pay attention to the, the different qualities of the breath, whether it's harsh or soft or whatever. So here they're saying, they're, they're uh, conveying the same meaning, but using the term appreciation. And only objects with which one has developed prior familiarity can induce mindfulness. So you can't be mindful of something that you haven't come become familiar with to a certain degree. You have to like connect with the object and re resolve its qualities, you know, discern it, categorize it, like understand what it is, and then understand its qualities, and then we can maintain mindfulness of that or those. Quoting Shanti Deva's text, The Compendium of Training, which is this interesting text by Shanti Deva, where he presents a, sort of a compilation of different qualities to be cultivated or, or discarded, organized around the six paramitas, I believe. Uh, mindfulness arises from great appreciation. Also, Shanti Deva's engaging in the Bodhisattva deeds, which we're more familiar with, lists some other causes that produce mindfulness. And, he, and they quote, owing to accompanying their teacher, following her guru's instructions, and out of fear, <laughs> fear inspiring mindfulness. If you don't do that right, I'm going to crack your head open. Those fortunate ones who practice with respect easily generate mindfulness. Hopefully we don't need fear in order to generate mindfulness. Mindfulness arises from companionship with the virtuous friend. Listening closely to the instructions taught by the learned master, having a sense of shame and fear being reproached by others, and respecting the holy person's advice. This little description here is probably highly different from what many of us have learned from uh, the uh, way that mindfulness is portrayed these days on the mindfulness movement or in the widespread uh, application and uh, appreciation of mindfulness, which is this idea that mindfulness is judge is non-judgmental attention to an object, right? In the Buddhist, early Buddhist tradition, until you get to 25th century Buddhism now, mindfulness always had a slant of virtuosity. It was always oriented towards cultivating virtue, interestingly. The definition of mindfulness is a mental factor that focusing on an object to which there's been previous familiarization presents the forgetting of it by its own power. An example is mindfulness that recollects one's parents and siblings with whom one has been familiar since earliest childhood. The Compendium of Knowledge says what is mindfulness? It is a mental factor that prevents the mind from forgetting the familiar thing, the more generic version of mindfulness. It has three distinguishing qualities. The distinguishing quality of its object, it is a familiar thing. The distinguishing quality of its aspect, not forgetting the object that is focused on. 
the thing is the distinguishing quality of its function. It prevents the mind from being distracted from the object and serves as the basis for the mind to remain continuously on that object, which leads to the next of the five object-determining factors. Furthermore, which is concentration. Furthermore, since mindfulness does not arise if there is no prior familiarity, the distinguishing quality of the object is called the familiar thing, that old same thing. Since mindfulness does not arise if the familiar thing does not appear as an object to the mind right now, the distinguishing quality of the aspect is called the mind's not forgetting. So forgetting implies that you knew something. You can't forget something you didn't know. And so the mindfulness as the not forgetting, which is often how it's described in traditional texts, not forgetting an object, necessarily requires having known the object or become familiar with it. And since the mind, coming over to page 114, will become increasingly stable in dependence on mindfulness, with these qualities, the distinguishing quality of the function is called the function of non-distraction. Texts such as clarifying the meaning of the treasury of knowledge, some commentary on Hossus Bandhu's text, mention that there are non-virtuous instances of mindfulness. Interestingly uh, contradictory in what I said earlier about it being having an ethical slant of positivity, positive uh, virtue. They say that uh, non-virtuous mindfulness by its own power merely recollects an afflictive object but does not cause a virtuous object to be forgotten in exchange. On the other hand, the non-virtuous object of forgetfulness by its own power can either recollect an afflictive object or cause a virtuous object to be forgotten. <laughs> sort of the opposite of mindfulness. To explain the etymology of the term, it is called mindfulness because it is mindful and not forgetting its object. That uh, definition of not forgetting. The function of mindfulness is to prevent movement of the mind away from the object and towards something else. However, the compendium of ascertainment says, what function does mindfulness have? It functions to recall the memory of what one has thought, done, and said a long time ago. From the point of view of recalling things thought of, actions done, and words spoken long ago, it functions to prevent movement of the mind away from the object. When mindfulness is categorized according to the compendium of ascertainment, there are three divisions, being mindful of the mind's thoughts, the body's deeds, and the voice's utterances. The effects of mindfulness are, in reliance on mindfulness that does not forget the object, there is an ever greater increase within one's own continuum of all the qualities of concentration single-pointedly placed on its object and of wisdom engaged in fine investigation. So the divisions are body, uh, mind, body, and voice, speech. The effects are not forgetting the object, ever increasing, ever greater increase of uh, qualities of concentration on the object and of wisdom engaged in fine investigation. It's the third effect or result. 
Shanti Davis says in his famous book, to those who wish to guard the mind, I join my palms together and pray, make every effort to guard mindfulness. And then what this, these uh, authors are, what this translator rather, um, who's the translator, Ian, somebody, uh, calls meta-awareness. Dechen Rochard, oh, translated by, and uh, meta-awareness is Sheshen uh, in Tibetan, Samprajanya in Sanskrit, is investigation, you know, translated usually as investigation, or introspection, or awareness. Thus Shantideva speaks of the great importance of applying mindfulness and meta-awareness. Fourth, to explain concentration, the cause of it is twofold. Physical solitude, away from social involvement, that is away from gatherings of many people, and mental solitude, free from gross conceptualization, that is free from running after various objects of thought. The questions of Gangana Ganja, Gagana Ganja Sutra says, the accumulation of calm abiding unites physical solitude and mental solitude. So finding a, a calm place to meditate and uh, freeing yourself of uh, heavily conceptual activities or, or responsibilities. Furthermore, its causes are placing the mind on the object mindfulness that does not forget its object and diligence that places the mind again and again on the object. Maitreya's uh, Dharma called the ornament for the Mahayana Sutras or Mahayana Sutra Alamkara says the mind remaining inwardly focused depends on mindfulness and diligence. The definition of concentration is a mental factor that by its own power stabilizes the mind single-pointedly on its object and functions as the basis for wisdom or of wisdom. An example is a mental factor that when fully focused on an attractive object remains single-pointedly on that without moving away to something else. The Compendium of Knowledge, Abhidharma Samachaya says, what is concentration? It is the single-pointedness of mind placed on the thing investigated and it functions as the basis of wisdom so interestingly concentration is uh, continually or, or uh, generally described as as the foundation for wisdom with the implication that without concentration wisdom is difficult and uh, that doesn't that doesn't have much to say yet about the degree of wisdom one uh, sorry concentration one needs for wisdom, but one needs some amount of concentration for wisdom to make the mind single pointedly sorry single pointed necessarily means to focus intently on a single object without having a second object. Also, concentration is not the same as attention. Attention directs the mind with which it is concomitant, excuse me, with which it is concomitant to its object, but it does not by its own power give rise to wisdom. Concentration does. So through attention, we direct the mind to the breath, and through concentration on the breath, then we understand 
let's say, the impermanent nature of the breath, something like that, or the impermanent nature of mental formations, mental and bodily formations. The etymology of the Sanskrit term samadhi, which is uh, what they're translating as concentration, has the connotation. And uh, so I circulated these, uh, a list of the 51 mental factors with translations. And sometimes many of us know the uh, Sanskrit, and it's helpful to see that because the English doesn't always match it, um, doesn't always like indicate to us what we understand through the Sanskrit. So I will screen share that for a moment. And I circulated this list taken from uh, a book by uh, Stephen Goodman called something or other. It's a catchy title. His book on Abhidharma. Um, I, I, I should. Uh... Buddhist Psychology of Awakening. Excellent. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Thank you so much. Buddhist Psychology of Awakening, Appendix 2, The 51 Mental Factors, According to Lama Mipom's Gateway to Knowledge, which was based on the Abhidharma Kosha by Vasubandhu and the Samuchaya. So Kosha is treasury, Samuchaya is compendium, Abhidharma is higher knowledge. The five ever-present factors we saw, Vedana, sensation, Samjna, here perception or conceptualization. And they're quoting different sources, gateway to knowledge is Mipom. Now there is this book that came out many years ago, it was one of the first books on uh, LORIC or the classifications of mental states, it had a translation of a text by a Galupa uh, master. That was a very short summary of the mental factors. And there they use this term for translating the third skanda, which I think is terribly confusing because that implies that um, every moment of cognition is conceptual because these are ever-present ever factors. So it's saying that conceptualization is ever-present, which is totally mistaken. Anyway, here's the Sanskrit, which is what I was getting at, and this one did not. Some of these don't show. I, I seem to not be able to install the correct character set to show certain uh, Sanskrit diacritics. I seem to have a technological handicap of sorts. Uh, but anyway, we're in this section here. Smriti is uh, recollection, mindfulness, samadhi for concentration, and our favorite, prajna for wisdom. And coming back to our text, uh, let's see. The etymology of the Sanskrit term samadhi for concentration has the connotation of apprehending correctly, or that the mind continuously and firmly apprehends its object, hence the word concentration. The function of concentration is to serve as a basis for wisdom, which is its effect. The, the compendium of ascertainments says, which is... Uh, Venus Chaya Samachaya or something like that. Um, 
what function does concentration have? It functions as a basis for wisdom. The effect of concentration is in reliance on concentration, the wisdom of special insight, Vipassana, arises. Also, it pacifies the mental disturbances and so on that come from attachment, excitation, scattering, and gross fluctuation of thought regarding the qualities of external sense objects and it makes the mind and body serviceable and so on. All of these are uh, uh, factors described in the cultivation of samadhi. The great final Nirvana Sutra says, the Mahapari Nirvana Sutra says, Shariputra, one who is engaged in concentration, meditation, attains correct understanding and correct thought through samadhi. Fifth, to explain wisdom. The cause of wisdom is that it arises and increases through learning and through cultivating familiarity with what has been learned. It's interesting to add that second part, through learning and then familiarity with what has been learned. So it's, you know, sort of repetition, greater under depth of understanding of what one's learned. So uh, implying that there's a, a sort of progression in learning about something as opposed to just what, learn it once and you're all the way through it. Wisdom of Band, Sublime Continuum, which is a text by uh, Maitreya, one of his five dharmas, the Uttara Tantra, says, Wisdom abandons all afflictive objects of knowledge, therefore it is utterly supreme. It causes learning. The definition of wisdom is a mental factor that focused on, a, on an object of inquiry has the function of analyzing it by its own power. An example is a mental factor that analyzes properly the distinctions between gross and subtle atoms. The compendium of knowledge says, what is wisdom? It fully differentiates the qualities of things to be investigated. It has the function of removing doubt. So in terms of its function, it removes doubt and so on regarding its object. Differentiates in the definition of the nature of wisdom means to differentiate individual objects without conflation. Wisdom and discernment are not the same. Are not the same. Wisdom by its own power differentiates individual things, whereas discernment by its own power applies a classificatory convention to them. That's a very interesting distinction, right? So between wisdom, prajna, and the third skanda, here translated as discernment. Discernment is classifying, and wisdom is... Um, differentiates individual things. That's a fine distinction. You know, classifying things implies that you're differentiating them from other things by putting them in, in certain uh, categories. And uh, wisdom by its own power differentiates individual things. And this is a, a, a phrase that we'll see in many places, we've already seen in many texts that we've gone through, um, individual uh, discrimination, the, the prajna of individual discrimination, the prajna of individually discriminating phenomena. And here we see that phrase again, uh, differentiates individual things. And uh, let's see, do they explain it further? No, they don't. Can, can I ask one question? Yeah. 
that because here they're using wisdom to translate prajna. Is that right? Yes. Whereas, I mean, in some other contexts, that that is not always the case, right? Like sometimes wisdom is, like I see, low, you know, further down they use jnana. They say awareness is what they translate for jnana, whereas sometimes jnana is translated as wisdom, right? Well, they said uh, this whole thing of awareness as a translation for jnana, I think it was earlier, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm, well, it's down text. here on this page too, but I'm just, I guess it's just the idea that... that it's a different tradition. It's like how, how are terms used in Chittamatra versus Madhyamaka. And so here we have Sautrantika, and Sautrantika prajna is wisdom, and jnana is just awareness. And I say just because it does have that sense of uh, it's not grandiose. And in the Vajrayana tradition, or at least the, the tradition of Jogyantrukpa Rinpoche, which most, if not all of us, are well-trained. Jnana has the sense of what, Cynthia, you're about to say it, and I interrupted you. Uh, no, go ahead. I, I didn't have any specific, I'm oh, not sure what I was, what I was We say. have this idea that jnana is, jnana is like uh, primordial wisdom. Well, right, that it's, prajna. I mean, in fact, I mean, actually, it, it, the reason I asked him is because I think even this morning or yesterday in the, the Ukraine Tong Len discussion of a Lojong slogan, Sarah Coleman jumped in to clarify this, you know, prajna not being wisdom. And so I was kind of, you know, I guess it sort of jumped out at me in terms of the, the different contexts um, in which people... <laughs> Uh, Prajna is not wisdom. That's a hard one to argue. How did she argue that? She was very much on the, you know, it, it Prajna as best knowledge, you know, as opposed to being wisdom. <laughs> so the sutras, the Prajna Paramita sutras are the, the transcendence of best, best knowledge. <laughs> and when the Buddha says Prajna is that faculty that understands emptiness we don't you know what does wisdom then understand that prajna doesn't it's a totally a trunk Rinpoche distinction where he distinguishes prajna and jnana in this way and uh, it's it's a gloss that comes from the vajrayana primarily dzogchen tradition where jnana is given um being being the translation being it's being affiliated with rikpa the Tibetan is the translation of Rikpa, which we saw here. And here, you know, both of them are translated as awareness, which is actually what Trungpa Rinpoche translated Rikpa as, as awareness, because he wasn't ever using Rikpa in the Dzogchen sense. He used it in a more basic sense. And... Uh, but, he, he only talked about it as one of the elements of mind, but not. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was always interesting to me. Yeah. So these, you know, terms are totally fungible, and uh, you got to have a flexible mind and understand the context, the author, the intent, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and go from there in your understanding of them. But. You know, to say to the larger Buddhist tradition that prajna is not wisdom is, is a very <laughs> odd thing to say. 
well, I think she's my a humble a, opinion. A, uh, Obviously, she's a total, she's an expert on Trungpa Rinpoche's right. way of presenting Dharma. So, you know, he had a certain system for presenting Dharma that had an incredible uh, brilliance and skillful means in it. And, and it totally makes sense to adhere to that and to understand that and the way he distinguished between Prajna and uh, Shana was that Prajna was much more of like a, a worldly, conventional, best level, best type of understanding or intellect. And, you know, if you look in Rimshay's books where he goes through the Paramitas, Prajna Paramitas, transcendent knowledge, not wisdom. And that's, you know, what she's working with. So, yeah, no, thank you for clarifying because I, I think it's just, it's challenging to uh, juggle those contexts and things. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it'd be silly to say to her, no, you're wrong. Because <laughs> it's, it's, totally contextual but yeah you have to know the bigger traditions or the wider tradition well it's yeah. i guess it depends on whether you're interested in the wider traditions right we are we are there we go thank you uh let's see so a further distinction between wisdom and discernment is that wisdom by its own power eliminates doubt whereas discernment does not eliminate doubt it you know it just comes up with its version of classification um, inquiry and analysis are also not the same as wisdom because those two, by their own power, do not eliminate doubt. Interestingly, you know, so you would inquire into an object, you would analyze it, and through that process, then you would develop wisdom about that object that understands it beyond doubt, presumably, is the, impl the uh, implied meaning of this. Furthermore, one could explain the term wisdom or prajna in Sanskrit by noting that it is an awareness, so it's a type of awareness that is excellent, fra, for seeking its object's way of existing. And again, we see that awareness here is the translation of the Sanskrit term jnana, as we just talked about, or it is called wisdom prajna, since it is an excellent form of knowing, jnana, as knowing or awareness and um, uh, excellent, either excellent for seeking its object, object's way of existing, its way of being, or it's an excellent form of knowing. Interesting. When categorized in terms of its nature, wisdom has two types, innate wisdom and wisdom acquired to mental cultivation when the, the latter is subdivided according to order of arising. There are the three types wisdom generated through learning, wisdom generated through critical reflection or contemplation, and wisdom generated through meditative cultivation, the three types of prajna. Treasury of Knowledge is auto-commentary, Bhavasubandhu says the phrase, also any, <laughs> which, where did he say also any? Must have said that somewhere here. <laughs> Also, any refers to any wisdom that has arisen from learning, reflection, and cult meditation, such as that belonging to the contaminated class and that obtained since birth along with its attendant qualities. Let's see if they explain that quote. First is the wisdom that arises spontaneously within a person's continuum without having trained in learning and so, so on. 
Second is the wisdom that ascertains just the general meaning of the words through listening to any teachings not previously heard, memorizing them without forgetting and reciting them, copying them, and so on in order to commit them to memory. Third is the wisdom that engages in inquiry and analysis and the meaning of the words listened to and eventually through valid cognition ascertains that meaning. Force is the wisdom that is a single-pointed mind assisted by a special pliancy that makes the mind and body serviceable arisen from meditating again and again on the meaning ascertained by the wisdom arisen from critical reflection. So now we have a list of four types of wisdom which seem to to uh, incorporate the three of hearing, contemplating, and meditating, plus an initial level of um, wisdom, which is uh, that sort of ment the mental factor that we're looking at that is spontaneously present within the continuum of all sentient beings um, without having had any training. It's just uh, this... Um, Um, let's see, it doesn't really describe this one, it's just the ability to, um, has the power to differentiate individual things, you know, going back to the, to the basic definition of wisdom as a mental factor, that first type of wisdom in this list on 117 is that basic quality, whereas the three stages of prajna then are added subsequently as types two, three, and four. And interestingly, the third type in this list of four, which is the second of the three prajnas, says third is the wisdom that engages in inquiry and analysis of the meaning of the words listened to. So that's how contemplation, when we talk about hearing, contemplating, and meditating, contemplating is intended to be performed. We engage in inquiry and analysis of the meaning of the words listened to, and eventually through valid cognition, ascertain that meaning. So uh, what are the two ways of uh, ascertaining through valid cognition? Two types of valid cognition. Yes, Mary Beth. <laughs> one is one is in inference. Yes. Okay. And the and other the is direct. Yes. Direct valid cognition and inferential valid cognition are the two types of valid cognition. And direct valid cognition is valid cognition without conceptuality that occurs either through the five senses and, and cognition through the five senses is necessarily direct, i.e. non-conceptual. Uh, it's not always valid though, it's sometimes it's mistaken due to a fault in the sense organ or the conditions of the sense object, right? And then the other type of valid cognition that's possible is inferential. Let's use his reasoning, and we'll be going through reasoning later on in this book. But it's very important to understand that there, those, that there's those two types of of valid cognition, and valid cognition is the best cognition, is the type of cognition that we want, and the type of cognition that we need in order to uh, bring about transformation on the path. Okay. 
and in life, actually, you know. Okay, so uh, let's see. The fourth is the wisdom that is a single pointed mind assisted by a special pliancy. And that refers to what happens at the uh, culminating stages of both shamatha and vipassana. Uh, but in particular, he's referring to shamatha, the special pliancy um, or suppleness or synchronization, as Trungpa Rinpoche calls it, of mind and body arisen from meditating on the meaning ascertained by the wisdom arisen from critical reflection. So one would meditate in a bring, bringing together shamatha and vipassana, one would ascertain uh, the meaning of something through wisdom by virtue of vipassana, and then one would cultivate shamatha on that meaning and together bring about pliancy in one's mind and body in that experience of understanding called wisdom. Vasubandhu's explanation of that text by Maitreya called the ornament for the Mayana Sutras says learning involves placing latent potencies in the mind. That's an interesting way of characterizing learning. We're like putting stuff into our mind as latent potencies for for uh, blossoming or coming to fruition at a, at a later time. Reflection involves bringing about realization from those latent tendencies. We sort of plant the seeds by, by hearing the words, memorizing the words, memorizing categories and ideas, and then we contemplate them and thereby cultivate those latent tendencies and bring about understanding. Um, let's see. Invo reflection involves bringing about realization. Meditative cultivation involves bringing about pacification through calm abiding and complete realization through special insight. So uh, meditation, meditative cultivation involves shamatha and vipassana on whatever one has come to understand through hearing and contemplation. Additionally, there is a categorization of wisdom into three types, virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral. Interesting that you can have non-virtuous wisdom. The compendium of ascertainment says, what is wisdom? It, it concerns this or that fact, and what it entails, and what it is to thoroughly analyze phenomena. It also concerns what arises through reasoning what does not arise through reasoning and what arises neither through reasoning nor not through reasoning. So, um, what it, let's see, it, it concerns this or that fact, so uh, things, what it entails and what it is to thoroughly analyze phenomena. Interesting. It also concerns what arises through reasoning interesting sort of general description of wisdom and how it functions. There are also these other types of wisdom, vast wisdom, swift wisdom, penetrating wisdom, clear wisdom, and so on. It's a very cool list of types of wisdom that you probably have never heard of. I never have heard of them. And then the authors explain them. The fruits of wisdom are as follows. Upon clearing away uh, being's confusion, it brings about an understanding of the object's way of existing. That's a good explanation of what wisdom is. Clearing away confusion, it brings about an understanding of the object's way of being. 
the sutra, the range of the Bodhisattva Sutra says the superior wisdom, which is like a light, continuously clears away its beings. Darkness like a lamp, it arises to illuminate and acts as a light to the host of afflictions, for it clears away the root of craving and confusion. Special wisdom is like a light. So going back to that uh, list, continuously removing beings' darkness or distorted aspiration. It is like the illumination of a lamp showing unerringly that which is to be adopted and to be abandoned. It is like a light clearing away the darkness of attachment by removing the root of craving and confusion. So no, they, he didn't, they didn't explain vast wisdom, swift wisdom, and so on. But uh, we did get special wisdom. The footnote on that one was interesting yeah. because it, it actually, in light of our earlier conversation, mentions that the, oops, oh God, I just lost it, that it might be better to use the word knowledge than wisdom in those cases. Ah, so 147. Or I'm sorry, intelligence uh, is what I, it, it, one might find it easier to use mm -hmm. the term intelligence rather than wisdom. However, wisdom is preferable in most contexts. Thank you, Cynthia. That's <laughs> great. So we're on uh, top of 118 now, the last chapter, uh, paragraph of this chapter. Thus, the Compendium of Knowledge says that the five mental factors mentioned above, aspiration and so on, have a determinate object. And the reason why they're not listed as omnipresent is because they each ascertain their object as follows. Aspiration arises regarding a sought object, but does not arise regarding anything else. Resolution arises regarding a previously ascertained object, but does not arise regarding anything else. Mindfulness arises only regarding a familiar object. Both concentration and wisdom arise only regarding an object of investigation. However, Vasubandhu's treasury, a lower Abhidharma text, even these five are described as omnipresent. So in his version, you have 10 omnipresent mental factors, and Asanga adds this slant or this, this further uh, gloss on the categorization of these mental factors and says that these are not omnipresent but are object determining. So is so is Vasubandhu saying the process is omnipresent but the actions aren't? Is that what I, I think you're talking about a, a sangha by by uh, categorizing them separately. Right. I think so. Something like it only it only happens in regard to an object that's been determined. Whereas the first omnipresent ones happen before having sort of singled out an object from the field of possible objects. Something like that. Yeah, I missed the Vasubandhu. Classes. I, I need you need to go back to those so I can get. No, no, no. You just go onward. <laughs> the reason, uh, let's see. The reason is that even if, for example, a mind with doubt is a concomitant mental factor, a slight, sorry, in, for example, a mind with doubt is a concomitant mental factor, a slight degree of wisdom exists. However, in such a mind, the wisdom aspect is weak. Doubt is the dominant factor present. That this is so will be explained in the presentation of mental factors based on the treasury of knowledge below in chapter 12. So that's his, the authors of this text's explanation of why Vasubandhu classified them as all omnipresent, saying there is some 
some aspect of these five object determining factors in all moments of cognition, um, even though they're weak or small. So eight, chapter eight, the virtuous mental factors. The third section presents the 11 virtuous mental factors, faith, shame, embarrassment, non-attachment, non-hatred, non-delusion, diligence, pliancy, heedfulness, equanimity, and ahimsa, non-violence. The verse summary is the 11 virtuous ones are as follows. Faith, shame, embarrassment, non-attachment, non-hatred, non-delusion, diligence, pliancy, heedfulness, equanimity, and non-violence. The first among these is faith. This mental factor functions as the basis of aspiration, aiming for a purpose. It has the aspect of trusting, admitting, or emulating a holy being in whom one has faith. The compendium says, what is faith? It acts as the basis of aspiration that is manifestly trusting, admiring, emulating with regard to what actually exists, has qualities or has ability. Here the phrase actually exists indicates the object of trusting faith, these different levels of faith. For it is faith that, faith that has confidence in what it, in what is true, existence and deceptive. The phrase has qualities and the, indicates the ab object of admiring faith. For upon seeing the qualities of a holy being in whom one has faith and so on, the mind becomes clear of defilements. Like water becoming clear of mud, and this leads to faith that higher qualities can arise within one's own con continuum. The phrase has ability indicates the object of emulating faith that thinks knowing what un, knowing that unskillful conditioning can be abandoned and higher qualities can actually be attained i must definitely attain them although in general the cause of all good qualities is diligence by the way just by the way <laughs> in order to generate diligence we need aspiration aiming for a purpose i.e emulating faith and to generate aspiration we need to have trusting faith together with seeing good qualities i.e admiring faith so we need these three levels of faith in order to generate diligence therefore unraveling the intention sutra samdhinir mochan explains again and again that faith is the foundation of all good qualities and uh, this becomes more pronounced in Mahayana sutras than in uh, earlier sutras. The second of these mental factors is shame. Um, shame, sorry, this mental factor shuns wrongdoing out of consideration for oneself. It acts as a basis for refraining from bad conduct and for engaging in good conduct. The compendium says, what is shame? It avoids wrongdoing out of, cons out of consideration for oneself. It has the function of acting as a basis for refraining from bad conduct. The third is not embarrassment. It shuns wrongdoing or bad conduct out of consideration for others, and it functions to engage in good conduct and abandon con bad conduct. I'm going to skip around now so we can cover more and I'm go through the basic definition and then of each of these and go to the next paragraph unless there's something in, uh, interesting intervening there and please stop me if I miss something that you find interesting. So we have the distinction between shame as focused on um, shuns wrongdoing out of consideration for oneself and embarrassment out of consideration for the uh, opinion. What, what it doesn't say is for the opinions of others. Um, the fourth non-attachment is a mental factor that having observed samsaric existence and what is needed to lead um, 
such existence, having observed samsaric existence and what is needed to lead such existence, reverses attachment to them and functions as a basis for not engaging in bad, bad, or bad, <laughs> negative conduct. Oh, the fifth mental factor is non-hatred. And interestingly, um, you know, we're more familiar with the positives. Non-hatred is love, non-attachment. Well, we would say non-attachment, I guess. But this mental factor, upon perceiving any of the three objects that give rise to anger, destroys the arising of anger and reverses any wish to harm. The three objects that give rise to anger are, <laughs> this is a great list, sentient beings. <laughs> If it wasn't for all those sentient beings, I wouldn't be angry. Suffering and circumstances that produce suffering. What is non-hatred? It reverses hostility towards sentient beings, suffering or circumstances that produce it. Thus, it functions as a basis for not engaging in negative. Why do they keep saying bad contact? That's silly. The sixth mental factor is non-delusion. This mental factor refers to an aspect of fine investigative wisdom and a dependence on its cause whether innate or generated through training we saw that distinction in prajna it functions as the antidote to delusion the compendium says what is non-delusion it is fine investigation and wisdom arising arisen rather from karmic ripening from studying scriptures from contemplating their meaning or from realizing their meaning. Thus it functions as a basis for not engaging in negative conduct. Non-delusion, which is the root of virtue, has two possible causes, innate and generated through training. Innate means generated through the ripening and a powerful purification accomplished in an earlier life. And it, although they didn't really explain innate and uh, um, generated through training prajna that well, we can use the same description of uh, non-delusion and apply it to prajna in terms of innate and cultivated. Um, so it is accomplished in an earlier life, so it's said to be karma from ripening, from karmic ripening, generated through training, refers to the three stages, learning, reflection, and cult meditation. Uh, stated in the compendium as respectively wisdom generated through studying, contemplating, and realizing. What is the difference between non-delusion and wisdom? The mental factor non-delusion is just non-confusion, and it functions as a basis for not engaging in negative conduct. Wisdom has the characteristic of final, finally analyzing things, and it functions to reverse afflictive doubt because there's different types of doubt. There's afflictive doubt and there's non-afflictive doubt. Some, some doubt can be very positive. Three mental factors, non-attachment, non-hatred, and non-delusion are the roots of all virtuous qualities. They are the means of stopping all bad conduct. And so they are the opposites of the three root poisons of attachment, aggression, and delusion. The seventh is diligence which consists of a completely joyous mental state focused on virtuous activity. This one really struck me was that diligence was all about joy. It was like, where's the like grind factor of, of uh, diligence that we so often and sort of universally uh, uh, 
affiliated with diligence. What is diligence? It is a completely joyous mental state in the context of armoring, application, non-discouragement, non-reversal, and non-indulgence. It functions to cause the virtuous side to become established and complete. Diligence is necessarily delighting in virtue. Therefore, making effort in worldly activities is not diligence. <laughs> so you can't say somebody is very diligent in acquiring wealth. Interestingly, when categorized diligence has five types, of course, there's many types. Delight, they're all delights. All the five types of diligence are delights, the five delights. Sounds like a song by Kempo or the Miller-Apa song. Delight that occurs prior to engaging in virtue. It's a delight, a diligence of armory. Delight that occurs at the time of virtuous application, whether steady application or zealous application. That's an interesting distinction. Is the diligence of application. Delight that occurs is non-discouragement of mind when generating virtue is the diligence of non-discouragement. Delight that occurs by not as not turning away from virtue in adverse conditions such as other people. <laughs> other people are, are called adverse conditions. <laughs> Do you remember the Peanuts uh, line? No, what was that? I love humanity. It's the people I can't stand. <laughs> Thank you. That's perfect. Uh, it is the diligence of non-reversal. Delight that occurs is not being content with the virtue one has already developed is diligence of non-indolence. These are outlined as armoring. So we often see the, the image of diligence as an armor, the armor of diligence and so on in the compendium. The eighth is pliancy, which sets a tendency in the mind stream that enables the mind to become serviceable in focusing on a virtuous object. Interesting, virtuous object exactly as desired, and that interrupts the continuum of bodily and mental dysfunction. What is pliancy? It is the serviceability of body and mind that has the function of dispelling all hindrances since it interrupts the continuum of bodily and mental dysfunction in general. There's two types, bodily and mental pliancy. The pliancy presented here is mental pliancy. The difference between them will be explained later in that context of calm abiding. The ninth is heedfulness, which is ascribed to a mind that lacks the three poisons and possesses diligence upon observing any type of virtuous factor. It has the aspect of protecting the mind from unvirtue, unfavorable factors. It functions to generate, maintain, or increase virtue. Uh, let's see. When categorized, it has three divisions, heedfulness regarding conduct belonging to the past, the future, or the present. We can count five divisions if we include conduct from an earlier time that continues to a later time. Uh, you got me there. You went from three to five by adding one additional type, but anyway, uh, let's see. Purify past non-virtues, refrain from them in the future, and do not engage in them in the present. Examine your motivation and continuously abide with heedfulness, similar to the fundamental stanza of uh, being a Buddhist in the Dhammapada. So heedfulness is the third of the three main mental factors involved in cultivating calm abiding. 
which are mindfulness, meta-awareness, you know, what's called meta-awareness here, and then heedfulness, where conscientiousness is what Trump Rimshe translates this as. The 10th mental factor is equanimity, having established the nine stages of mental abiding using methods that set the mind single-pointedly on an internal object, internal, attain spontaneous mental abiding without needing to exert any effort in applying the antidotes to laxity and excitation, which are the two main um, obstacles to calm abiding. When the ninth stage of mental abiding is achieved, the compendium says, what is it? It is based on non-attachment, non-hatred, and non-delusion. Those three having overcome the three root poisons and is accompanied by our favorite delight, diligence. It functions to prevent an occasion for mental afflictions to arise. It is evenness of mind, stillness of mind, spontaneous mental abiding that counters the mental afflictions. The functioning of it does not allow an opportunity for mental afflictions such as laxity and excitation. In general, mere equanimity includes three types. Equanimity, that's a conditioning factor, that's a feeling and a measurable equanimity in the present context. We're concerned with the first type, a conditioning factor. Sangha Shravakabhumi says, what is equanimity? It is a non-afflicted mind directed toward an object within the purview of calm abiding and special insight. It is a mind in equipoise without mental afflictions flowing peacefully and inwardly engaged, a mind that is blissfully balanced and serviceable that is focused without needing to make any effort. Very nice description of the ninth stage of shamatha. The 11th mental factor is non-violence, which is associated with non-hatred, that upon observing its object, sentient beings, thinks with an aspect of loving kindness or being unable to bear other suffering if only they were free from suffering. It functions to restrain oneself from beating, killing, and so on. And uh, it is the mind of compassion itself, which is associated with non-hatred. So we have... Um, love for loving kindness described as non-hatred uh, non and then we have non-violence as the way of describing compassion its function is to restrain from harming compassion has the nature of non-violence and then we have a section on love and compassion was this in tonight's reading i think so Loving compassion here to expand on the presentation of the 11 virtuous mental factors above. We now discuss love and compassion. Yeah, this was a neat little presentation on this very uh, popular common topic. As for the benefits of love and compassion, they accrue initially to the person in whom they arise. Initially, for instance, when kind-hearted attitudes such as love, compassion, and forbearance arise and are sustained within one's mind stream, they reduce one's fear and boost one's confidence. In these and other ways, they increase one's inner strength, love, and compassion, arouse a feeling of close connection with others, as well as a sense of purpose and meaning in life. They also give one respite in difficult times. It is true for all people, no matter who they are, that when they generate a kind-hearted attitude towards others, their own life becomes happier. This attitude can also bring a greater sense of ease and more peace in the community within which they live. 
So if each individual is able to accord greater importance to his or her own ethical behavior and make qualities like love, compassion, forbearance, and so on, an inseparable part of his or her own life, then this will definitely produce the most wonderful results. We have not seen a description of forbearance, I think, yet. Um, as human beings, we are born into and grow up under the loving care of our parents, and the powerful feeling of affectionate love during our youth remains in our lifeblood. Medical scientists have demonstrated with empirical evidence that when there's a strong feeling of loving kindness, happiness, and peace of mind in a person's life, it enhances physical health, and likewise, a mind constantly agitated undermines physical health. Love and compassion are values we all appreciate quite naturally without having to be told to appreciate by other people. Not only are they precious qualities of our minds, but they are also the basic sources of happiness for us as individuals and are the ground of social harmony. Therefore, whether one is seeking happiness for one's own sake or seeking happiness for others, one must practice love and compassion. Furthermore, Having a motivation of kindness is the root of kind behavior. When one turns one's mind toward the well-being of others based on a pure altruistic motivation, one's own behavior naturally becomes flawless from the standpoint of ethical conduct. Therefore, love and compassion definitely constitute the primary foundation that underpins all the paths of good ethical behavior. Also, what we call peace is not simply a matter of not harming other people, but it's also clearly an expression of loving kindness. Since the root of human happiness is loving kindness, all the major religious traditions in the world have teachings that focus on the practice of loving kindness. Just as people appreciate kindness, animals do as well. The most precious treasure a person can possess it is a kind heart. To be helpful, good-natured, and kind-hearted to others is the essence of human life. And when these are absent, life has no meaning. Interesting. Loving kindness is not something we have to, no means to generate. The potential for loving kindness exists within the continuum of every human being simply by virtue of the type of physical body we have. Simply by having a physical body, we possess the potential for loving kindness. We need to nurture and enhance this potential using our intelligence. We need to develop it not only towards humans, but also towards other beings. Even if someone has no faith, he or she must be able to recognize that love and compassion are extremely important and profoundly helpful in one's life. Although we have strong feelings and experiences, of loving kindness when we are very young. As we grow older and as time goes by, all sorts of internal factors and forces within our environment hinder the potential of loving kindness within us. Whether we are religious or not, we must surely understand that loving kindness is needed for our own happiness as well as for the happiness of our family and society, and that loving kindness is what gives rise to peace and happiness in the mind. In general, they are differentiated on two levels. First is the affectionate love that arises as a factor of physical development, like the love expressed by a mother carrying her infant child. The second level is when one has generated that natural affection and then enhanced it through extensive meditative cultivation so as to make one's love and compassion universal. To give rise to the latter, we must adopt an unbiased gaze not paying attention to whether someone is master or servant, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, strong or weak, fair or dark-skinned. 
it is most important to recognize that all of the nearly 8 billion people in this world are the same in being human. Everyone is the same in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering. When we have this type of understanding, notions of us and them and minds of attachment and hatred based on them can diminish. There are two ways of viewing others. One is to see that everyone is the same in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering. And so to view everyone as one people. The other way is to view others in terms of their differences, such as nationality, country, ethnicity, language, wealth, poverty, education, religious tradition, and so on. The first way of viewing others does not give rise to attachment and hatred in our minds, whereas the second way of viewing give rises, gives rise to based, biased attitudes of us versus them, which provide the basis for notions of friend and foe, although love may arise for some on the basis of discriminatory feelings of me versus you, it would be, it would be a biased type of affectionate love, and whereas affectionate love is biased, hatred can, also, can arise as well. It is on the basis of such biased attitudes that attachment towards one, one's own side and suspicion toward the other side, as well as resentment and ill will, can arise. In contrast, love that arises out of simply considering someone to be just another human being is an unbiased type of loving kindness. So the love that we need to develop is the loving kindness that arises in dependence on recognizing someone to be human being just like ourselves. As Maitreya says, adopt an attitude of sameness towards sentient beings. Likewise, Harry Baudra says, adopt an attitude of sameness toward all sentient beings, no matter how hairy they are. And Shanti Deva says, and that both myself and others are the same in wanting happiness. What is so special about me that I strive for my happiness alone? And that both myself and others are the same and not wanting suffering. What is so special about me that I protect myself but not others? And that there is no difference between oneself and others since both are alike and wanting to be happy. It becomes unreasonable to strive for one's own happiness alone and not for others. Similarly, in that there is no difference between oneself and others since both are alike and not wanting to suffer. It is unreasonable to guard one's own happiness alone, and not to guard the happiness of others. Furthermore, when we understand the way in which human beings love, live rather in mutual dependence on one another, this too can give rise to unbiased loving kindness towards others. Human society survives through community and not through each individual living in isolation, even if we just look at the constitution of the physical body. An individual's happiness necessarily arises in dependence on others. Thus, throughout all of human society, from large units like nations to smaller units like single households, um, among all our needs, education, health, commerce, wealth, food, drink, clothing, utensils, and so on, not a single thing is not dependent on others. Given this fact of our existence, if we continue to despise or mistrust one another, deceive one another, and hurt one another, then there's no possibility for us to attain happiness. Nowadays, all over the world, one finds the belief that happiness is increased through mere material progress and that this is the root cause of a happy human life. But even with the best possible material conditions, if everyone's mind is filled with self-centeredness, attachment, anger, pride, ill will, jealousy, rivalry, expectation, fear, prejudice, and so on, then no one can have a happy life. Conversely, 
even without the best material conditions, if everyone has a subdued, peaceful mind, an attitude that cherishes others and is helpful, content, loving, tolerant, and so on, then everyone will have a happy life. Thus, there is no denying that a happy or unhappy life depends mainly on one's attitude. The causes of happiness are produced within each person's mind. If people in individual households have no mental happiness, then it's be difficult for those households and the societies they comprise to find a path to happiness. The conditions that produce so many of the human-made problems in our world these days are greed, competitiveness, resentment, ill will, pride, jealousy, attachment, hatred, and so on. And the root of these is none other than the self-grasping through me and self-centeredness. Um, Dharma Kirti says when there is self, there is a notion of other from the distinction between these comes attachment and hatred fully linking with these two, all faults arise. When there is self-grasping, an exaggerated notion of other occurs from this division into essentially distinct partitions or categories of self and others. This gives rise to grasping and attachment to one's own side and hatred towards others. When one's mind stream is linked with these mental factors of attachment and hatred, all the faults such as killing and stealing occur. Similarly, Shanti Davis says, all those who are happy in the world are so from wanting others to be happy. All those who suffer in the world are so from wanting themselves to be happy. All the various types of happiness in the world come from benefiting others and wanting others to be happy. All the various types of suffering in the world come from wanting oneself to be happy, which is self-centeredness and self-grasping. Therefore, one must counteract self-centeredness and self-grasping from a variety of angles. In brief, people's verbal and physical conduct is classified as good or bad from the point of view of motivation, even down to the smallest deed. The crucial point is that when engaging in any action, whether large or small, one must first generate a good motivation. The way for all people born in this world to attain happiness is to turn our backs on all disharmony based on race, philosophical view, religious tradition, and so on. This is a crucial cause of enhancing good conduct among all races and nations, regardless of religious traditions. We should understand good conduct to mean not harming others through one's own body, speech, and mind. Um, so on and so forth. Okay. Since the uh, human society must live in Dependence is extremely important to be good and to share. Um, mentally, we should uh, have the responsibility of abandoning hatred and ill will toward human race in which we all depend. Love and forbearance recognizes the two antidotes to hatred of these. We will first explore love among the 51 mental factors, both compassion and love are in the nature of the mental factor referred to as non-hatred. If there's a difference between them, compassion arises from observing sentient beings to be suffering, has the aspect of wishing to be free from that loving, on the other hand, arises from observing sentient beings from the perspective of their well-being, and has the aspect of wishing them to be more well-being. So when it's sort of wanting them, wanting the negative not to be there, and the other is wanting the positive to be more there. Definition of love is a mental factor that having observed sentient beings thinks how wonderful it would be if they had happiness and wishes for them to have it. Uh, let's see. The function of love is to help pacify resentment, rage, and ill will. And the sutra 
The Akshayamati Nirdesha Sutra says, love protects oneself and consistently benefits others for it is supremely non-argumentative, <laughs> mentative, and thoroughly destroys all the severe faults of ill will, rage, and resentment. Moreover, it acts as an antidote to hatred and functions on a, as a basis for not engaging in bad conduct. Prativibandhu's says love that engages in benefiting sentient beings is indeed the antidote to hatred functions as a basis for not engaging in negativity and when non-hatred is present there's no engaging and killing and so forth the results of love or pacification of jealousy rival ill will also when is mental happiness courage great through strength and so on and so forth okay forbearance According to the play of Manjushri says, uh, daughter, how do you explain non-hatred? I thought we were talking about forbearance. The daughter replies to Manjushri, it is that which stops animosity arising in the mind and prevents the harming of any object. This I understand to be forbearance. Chandrakirti says, giving is the essence of the perfection of generosity. Absence of anguish is the essence of ethical discipline. What an interesting statement absence of anguish is the essence of ethical discipline non-hatred is the essence of forbearance and defining the essence of generosity and so on chandra kirti identifies forbearance in terms of non-hatred or a state of mind that is not perturbed in the face of suffering or harm which is the more traditional definition of forbearance not perturbed in the face of suffering three kinds of forbearance uh, sometimes called patience, are outlined in Shanti Davis. Uh, the commentary on it. forbearance consists of three kinds. Uh, the forbearance of consciously accepting suffering, the forbearance of certitude and contemplating the nature of reality, and the forbearance of disregarding harm done by others. First, the forbearance of consciously accepting suffering refers to accepting with equanimity painful circumstances from which one cannot escape such as difficulty and hardship in one's home life. If you cannot access resilient tolerance when express, experiencing your own suffering, then consider what Shanti Davis says. If there is a remedy, what use is it to feel upset? If there's no remedy, then what use is it to feel upset? I hate that quote. It's just like, it's so obnoxious. <laughs> it just gives me nothing to do. <laughs> I can't complain. It's totally uprooted complaining. If there's a remedy, what reason is there to be happy? If there's none, then why be unhappy? Um, two, forbearance of certitude and contemplated nature of reality refers to analyzing and contemplating the meaning of the object to be meditated, for example, while debating a student of Buddhist philosophy contemplates the meaning of what one is debating on. Interesting, forbearance of certitude, forbearance of disregarding harm by, done by others refers to an attitude of restraint and tolerance when, for example, somebody causes you harm instead of being angry, you practice forbearance. Which des anger destroys one's peace of mind, causes psychological imbalance, and results in damage to our immediate environment. By recognizing these faults of anger, we develop forbearance. This is a, I see this one all over these days where people say, like, if somebody wrongs you, then, um, 
if you don't forgive them, then you're continuing the wrong to yourself. You're continuing to cause harm to yourself. They caused harm to you once, so there's no need to cause further harm by maintaining anger. And maintaining anger actually causes harm to oneself, interestingly. So of the three types of forbearance, the last occurs in the context of being harmed, whereas the other two may occur in any context. Um, skipping the rest of that paragraph, the next last on 132 is to contemplate the benefits of adopting forbearance. The sutra says bodhisattvas do not have hatred, any hatred, sorry, hatred in their minds. They see all beings as dear and are fond of them. And let's see, skipping to the next page, a bunch of quotes about forbearance. And uh, being practicing forbearance makes one have a beautiful body, be dear to and cherished by holy beings, and become skillful in knowing what is and is not correct, which in this tradition means to become first in sound moral reasoning. And then uh, this quote from Shanti David that has that famous part about covering the whole world in leather. Wicked people are as limitless as space. There's no possibility of conquering them. But if I conquer my mind of anger alone is like conquering all of my enemies. Where, where would enough leather be found to cover the entire surface of the moon? But if I put leather just on the soles of my feet, this is like covering the whole surface of the earth. Since wicked people are as limitless as space. <laughs> Just saying, it's impossible to overcome them, yet overcoming and subduing your mind of anger alone would be like conquering all of them. Okay, explains the quote on the next page, 134. The way to cultivate it, the antidote to hatred is as follows. Contemplate that anger is inappropriate because it yields no benefits and bring serious problems. Some Say someone harms you and you become enraged and retaliate. This will not undo the harm they've done. So what point is there in seeking revenge? Skipping the quote, furthermore, not wanting to experience future suffering while simultaneously seeking revenge for the harm done to you by others is a contradiction. Responding with harm through engaging in quarrels, disputes, and so on damages not only yourself, but also your relatives and friends. Also, the grave consequences occur in the present and will continue to occur, even so far as losing your life. Therefore, just as you tolerate the pain when a doctor pierces you with a sharp instrument as part of a treatment, so you should cultivate firm tolerance in the face of slight tempor temporary suffering so as to avoid endless long-term pain. What about in the face of great uh, ongoing suffering? Anyway, also some people overwhelmed with mental sickness even harm their doctor, yet their doctor thinks this is beyond your control, their control, without getting angry. She tries various methods to cure their mental sickness. Similarly, when an abuser harms you, you consider He's behaving in this way because he's impelled by mental afflictions beyond his control and make a distinction between the mental affliction and the person. That's a tough one. And whose continuum it arises. So without getting angry at the person, you think, may he be free from these mental afflictions. And this is how you put a stop to hatred. 
So you become upset with their poison and not with the person. Chandra Kitchi says, the fault here is not sentient beings, the fault is the afflictions. Since wise ones who have thoroughly analyzed this do not get angry with sentient beings. When someone strikes you, if the appropriate response to get angry with the one directly inflicting the harm, then you should get angry with the stick or the weapon. And if the appropriate response to get angry with that which is indirectly inflicting the harm, then since it is anger that incites the attacker, you should get angry with the anger. <laughs> Either way, it's not appropriate to get angry at the person. The person doesn't even exist, but they don't say it. Skipping the quote, if it's in the nature of unwise beings to harm others, then it's just as inappropriate to get angry with them as it is with fire for being hot and burning. And if it is but an adventitious fault, then it would be like blaming the sky for being filled with smoke. God damn, I can't believe it's... Smoke, yeah, there are many techniques such as these to destroy the supreme enemy. Anger is the supreme enemy, is anger. So if we use several kinds of reasoning based on thorough analysis, fine investigative awareness to prevent the arising of anger, many types of anger will cease and forbearance will arise in manifold ways. So remember next time you get angry that instead you should, you should use um, Several kinds of reasoning based on thorough analysis with fine investigatory awareness <laughs> instead of getting angry, okay? Just remember that. It's very simple. Just Okay, good. Compassion, I think we skipped that. That's sort of a no-brainer. Just kidding. It's not very important, right? Can we take a few more minutes to go through that definition as a mental factor that thinks upon observing other sentient beings? How wonderful it would be if they were free from the causes of suffering. May they be free from suffering. It fun functions to counteract violence. Examples are loving kindness that thinks upon seeing stricken sentient beings being tortured by suffering. How wonderful it would be if they were free from suffering. And loving kindness that thinks upon observing sentient beings creating the cause of suffering. May they be free from creating the cause of their own suffering. Based on that, the scriptures also explain a special type of compassion that wishes to protect sentient beings by thinking, I myself will free sentient beings from suffering. And in some places, we see this as the third of three levels of suffering, or three sort of steps in suffering. They gave the two up above, where um, first observing sentient beings, how wonderful it would be if they were free from the causes of suffering, may they, and then secondly, may they be free from suffering. So first, like, it would be great if they were free from suffering. And then the second sort of level of compassion or step in developing compassion is, is well, it would, in addition to being great if they were free from suffering, I wish they were free from suffering. And then the third step in cultivating compassion is, I will help them be free from suffering. I myself will help them. So that which completely frees all sentient beings from every great, every suffering is great compassion that third time. Sanskrit word for compassion is karuna, the syllable, uh, something. Karn means happiness, and the symbol runa means blocking. This indicates that when one sees the specific suffering of others, it's unbearable and blocks one's happiness. Therefore, karuna means blocking happiness. The function of compassion is to counteract violence towards sentient beings. 
The explanation of the compendium says what is nonviolence associated with non-hatred is the mind of compassion itself it functions to counteract violence and the treasury's auto commentary says love is the nature of non-hatred and compassion too is like that <laughs> among the 51 mental factors both love and compassion are in the nature of the mental factor non-hatred which they keep saying but then they keep defining it as non-violence i gotta complain to them about that Yet there's a difference. Compassion arises upon observing sentient beings to be suffering, has the aspect of wishing them to free from that love arises upon observing sentient beings in terms of their happiness and has the aspect of wishing them to possess happiness. As we know from our refrain, uh, may all sentient beings be happy and enjoy happiness, the root of happiness, be free from the root of suffering, the root of suffering. As for the cause of generating compassion, this includes recognizing one must abandon sentient beings, since oneself and other sentient beings are equal in wanting happiness, not wanting suffering. Recognizing how other sentient beings have been one's relatives from the distance past, contemplating how they tortured. Uh, how they are tortured by various sufferings and reflecting deeply on how one's own happiness and suffering are the results of benefiting and harming sentient beings and so on. Regarding all sentient beings, one must think of them as one's mother, father, brother, friend, sister, relative, family member. This is from the Perfectional Wisdom in 25,000 lines. Many sutras and commentaries say that such a teaching that one must think of all sentient beings as one's relatives is the cause of compassion. Thinking of sentient beings as our relatives is intended to train the mind in compassion, as in the case of seeing a neutral person with whom we have no special relationship or seeing someone who harms us, such as an enemy in general. We do not need to train in compassion toward our dear relatives or toward a child tormented by grief at the loss of his or her mother. Compassion. In other words, we don't need to train in them, but compassion arises naturally for them. And it arises naturally uh, in such context, sorry. Say we are training compassionate attitude toward neutral. What? Say we are training in a compassionate attitude toward neutral persons. Say we are. We cultivate the thought of them as family members to help generate the feeling of finding their suffering unbearable when we see them. Um, so Shanti Davis says, do not stress the cultivation. Sorry, his text does not stress the cultivation of recognizing other beings as one relatives and instead emphasizes training the mind in equanimity. Okay, so there's two ways of training compassion. One is to see everybody as one's relatives and one has a natural compassion towards one's relatives, and the other is to see everybody as equal, and that one itself and others are the same in wanting happiness and thereby generating compassion for them. And it's on such a basis that the contemplation of exchanging the self and others is generated. And this is in Shanti Deva's text. He introduces the practice of exchanging self and others. This is a unique instruction for training the mind and compassion when the uh, one should develop an understanding of it from this source, Tonglen. The results of compassion are um, that uh, it enables all beings to trust. This is the foundation of faith for those who fear the terrors of samsara and places beyond sorrow, those who have good mental discipline, and as it is the basis of refuge for those who lack protection.
The Samadhi Raja Sutra says it makes one kind, excellent in demeanor, and always serene, and it benefits oneself as well as other sentient beings. So one should cultivate love and compassion. In general, the scriptures teach of five, speak of five types of virtue. Ultimate, virtue by its essential nature, virtue through concomitance, virtue owing to motivation, and virtue through relationship. The eleven mental factors listed above are characterized as being virtue by their essential nature. And that their being virtuous is not contingent on some other factors, such as underlying motivation or concomitant factor. They are virtuous by their very existence. Ultimate virtue is identified in terms of ultimate reality. And it is so called because one meditates by taking ultimate reality as one's focus. Sorry, when one meditates by taking ultimate reality as one's, one's focus, it gradually leads to the removal of all mental obscurations. It is therefore not an actual virtue. It is just given the name virtue. <laughs> virtue through concomitants refers to any minds or mental factors that have arisen as concomitant factors to any of these 11 mental factors. And virtue owing to motivation refers to being motivated by compassion, so forth and most physical and verbal actions. Virtue through relationship refers to virtuous latent potencies and so on. Imagine that we made it through all of that cool stuff. Any final comments or concerns or questions or suggestions? Any aspirations for the next year? Any New Year's resolutions or aspirations? Resolving or discernments or fine investigations or analyses? Going once, going twice. Ah, Cynthia. This is just actually a little question from a few pages back. I, um, and I'm just curious. I No aspirations or anything like that at the moment. But there was this thing that, it, and I just don't know if you would have any insight on this. It was talking about pliancy. And it said something to the effect that it interrupts the continuum of bodily and mental dysfunction. And I was just wondering whether that um, phrase, continuum of bodily and mental dysfunction, is that essentially a, a way of describing our habitual patterns as a whole, the whole, you know, um, sort of Alaya Vishnana, you know, pile of seeds or is it, does it have some other specific meaning that you know of? I don't think it's quite as broad. I think it's more of the, what Trung Brimshe captures in synchronization. So the physical mental dysfunction meaning meaning their disunification, the desynchronization of mind and body was the way I took it to mean. Okay, that's much simpler. Thank you. Yeah, because <laughs> otherwise it could be like everything and then it, it, it would be described, I think, in a slightly different way. Right. Okay. I just, I, I couldn't come to like yeah. an exact, you know, connection there and it seemed pretty vast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Well, cool. Thank you all. Nice to see you. Hope you have a nice evening and week and hope to see you again next week, if not sooner. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden scent of the great east, near the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory.
Thank you. Thank Tashi Delic. Have a great year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.